Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning. Welcome, everybody. This morning, we have as our guest a wonderful friend, Jessica Gordon Nimhart. Dr. Nimhart, good morning. Good morning. So great to be on here. So how are you today? I'm doing well. Doing well. I can't believe it's the end of March, so I'm happy to close out Black Women's History Month or Women's History Month. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to talk about black women today in the co-op yeah. movement. So this is uh, Women's History Month, and the the spotlight is on women's stories, women that tell stories and the stories about women. So today we're going to talk about different black women. So first, can we talk about your story? How did you get involved in this co-op movement? Sure. So I'm an economist, a political economist. I became an economist because I was worried about uh, poverty and economic inequality and wanted some tools to figure out how to really, you know, make systemic changes. In my career as an economist, uh, I had a job as an economic development analyst for the Black Community Crusade for Children, which was part of the Children's Defense Fund in the 90s. And it was while I was looking into family-friendly, community-friendly, black values-friendly economic development strategies that I came across cooperatives. And so first I asked the question, you know, what are cooperatives and how can they really be community economic development strategies? But I also had to ask myself, what was the role of black folks mm -hmm. in cooperatives? And my first questions to both black folks and to co-op people Nobody knew. People thought there wasn't much legacy. There wasn't much black activity. It didn't sound right to me. I luckily had um, a classmate in grad school who had studied Du Bois's economic thought, and Du Bois's economic thought was actually about cooperative economics for black folks. So he led me to some things to read, and so I kind of followed Du Bois's trail and thinking and found some examples from Du Bois and then was able to do what we call the snowball effect. I just kept looking into more and more of the co-ops that I found in different places. I looked in black newspapers, uh, autobiographies of black leaders, that kind of thing. And slowly I was able to put together this great history of what was happening to uh, black Americans and seemed to have made my career on it. Okay. Um, but it was really all about wanting, you know, wanting to figure out strategies to really address any economic inequality. Economic inequality and how we can solve the economic issues in the black community, in the black family. Right. Yep. And so yep. you wrote a book called Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. Yes. And you told me once before that when you asked around, people told you that blacks didn't do co-ops. Right. That was, that was what people believed, and you uncovered so much history that blacks 
are cooperators. Yeah. And so much history that blacks are cooperatives, both, as I said, in the thought, right, in the things that some leaders were saying, but also in the practice and what we were doing every day and what some of our organizations were trying to help more people to do. So it turned out, right, there's just this incredibly strong, vibrant history from, you know, 1700s on that we didn't know as much about. So I also kind of learned that we didn't know so much about it because black folks were often doing it under the radar so they wouldn't get targeted and undermined by white supremacists who didn't want them to succeed. They often were embarrassed about the failures, but when I looked into them, most of the failures were because of the sabotage, not because Mm. we did anything wrong. But it turns out, uh, and then not wanting to be red-baited by the time we get to the 1950s, so there wasn't a lot of passing on the language of cooperative economics. And so it was, again, the stories. Once I started telling stories, people came back and told me stories. And so the stories were there, but the connection to the language and the, and the terminology was not there. So there's sabotage and red-baiting. What's red-baiting? Red-baiting is calling people communists and socialists and assuming that they're trying to undermine the U.S. and traitors to the U.S. So a lot of radical black folks were accused of that and so again had to hide the things that they were doing that people thought were too communist and too anti-capitalist and against the U.S. And of course black folks suffered more from that kind of uh, labeling and accusations. It's amazing to me how people U.S. really sabotage the word socialism, and we have so much socialism in here. With I'm, I'm on Medicare, I'm on Social Security, I went to public yeah. schools. All of those are socialist yeah. policies, and we act like socialism is I don't know worse than the devil or something. Right? Yeah. So, and then penalize people for doing stuff that make life better for everybody else and keep us surviving. So. Um, so, yeah, so it turns out that's why, at least that's my understanding of why we don't know this history as much. But as I said, and, you know, our theme is stories, it's in the storytelling. And so the more I started talking about it and giving the examples rather than trying to use the language I learned as an economist, right, the more people resonated and the more people remembered things that happened in their families, their grandparents, their aunts and uncle. Right, and then they could actually start to visualize and think about the cooperative economic things that happened in their family that they saw in their communities, that kind of thing. Once that happened, it seems like more and more people have been really excited. Plus, you know, we live in a world of multiple crises, and co ops help to address those. So, if you know, I'm seeing in the 21st century more and more co op activity, especially among the black communities and communities of color. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but you are a professor, and besides teaching people like me, and Dr. Stacy Sutton was on last week, and she said you were her mentor, uh, I've had several ladies on particularly, but all throughout the diaspora, people look up to you and said, you've taught us about this co-op movement. Who else do you, what is your work now that you're teaching in the classroom? So, um... I teach in the City University of New York system at John Jay College, and I teach courses on African-American history, institutional racism, 
political economy of race, community economic development, and actually every course that I teach, I always have a theme, a module on uh, economic cooperation and the history of black co-ops because I find that the students are, um, while they want to understand our history and they understand it's important to to study systemic racism and and how it's formed and how it shows up, they also are looking for solutions, right? They, they don't want to just hear the gloom and doom. They want to know how do we get out of it. And co-ops have been the solution in so many situations that my telling the story of some, you know, some of the stories of black co-ops through history, when I tell the stories of how uh, black young people have used and owned their own co-ops, it just gives them that sense that there is hope, there is something else that we can do. We don't just have to be victims, right? We cannot just resist, but we can actually prosper by creating our own, you know, economic democracy. So I do, uh, I, I teach uh, undergraduates and some uh, master's level courses in New York City. My students are mostly commuter students. Um, they're mostly students of color and many of them are women. Um, and so they really resonate to having this kind of applied knowledge, right? Learning sort of the theories and the analysis and how to do critical analysis of what's happened in the world and where we are today, but they also love to get the inspiration from these alternative solutions. So when these students are commuting, you said black women particularly, so that means that they are more adults? They're, they're not your normal going to college? Thing? No, they're still young. They're still young, but they're okay. city kids. And so the college just, it has like one dorm, I think, that it might share with one of the other colleges. But basically it's for New York City residents, and they basically live at home and come to school. Okay. And actually John Jay has a lot of Latinas. It's actually a, almost a majority Latinx school, and then it's got a significant black population as well. And we're, I think, about 60% women. So it's a really interesting population of students. Seems like you fitted right in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it worked out very well for me. I actually for, started out commuting from D.C. because I've lived in D.C. for like 25 years. But my parents are up in New York area, and so I needed to be up near them. And you taught a while at Howard, Howard University? I just was a visiting, a visiting professor at Howard, and I did a couple of their summer programs on wealth. And before that, I taught about six years at the University of Maryland College Park. Okay. And before that, I was a researcher at Morgan State in their Institute for Urban Research. Okay. So um, I want to tell you something. This doesn't necessarily fit into what we're talking about, but this past October, I was in San Diego celebrating the 50th year of the Afro-American Studies Department. I was mm -hmm. one of those professors in 1972, and then in 73, I was the first chair of the Afro-American Studies Department. And I was teaching mathematics. So don't... Oh, cool. <laughs> it was, the cool part of it was teaching blacks and Mexican-Americans mainly, mm. who were told they couldn't do math. And the committee that created the, the department, Afro-American Studies Department, it's called Africana Studies now, felt like if somebody taught math, 
that believes that the students can learn it, they can learn it. I had really great results and a lot of exactly. fun. Exactly. A lot of fun. Yeah, um, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, was, so I'm in an Africana Studies department also. We were African American Studies, and then about eight years ago, we changed our name to Africana Studies to show more broader connection to diaspora. Yes. To African diaspora. And five of the seven original professors were there. That, and that was uh, so much fun to, wow. to get caught up with them. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know that part of your history. Yeah, it's it's uh, a lady by the name of um, Dr. Shirley Weber. She was the chair for about 40 years, and she was there at the beginning of 72. She was 23 years old when we started, and I was 25, wow. and that was 50 years ago. Wow, so. wow. yeah. And it, it's now the Secretary of State for California. So she's she's come along. So with cool. We're talking about women. And we're going to take yeah. our first break. We've talked about your story, which is exciting. And we're going to come back and talk about uh, the stories of black women that you have found out that have have been in this economic development, this cooperative economic development in, in the U.S. throughout the years. And what organizations that they've started, what they have done, and the results that they've had. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Okay, we're back. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we're celebrating Women's History Month, and we're talking about black women's stories. And Dr. Jessica Grenimhart is our guest today. We talked in the first segment about her story. And now, who would you like to talk about? What, what ladies, let's say from the past, who would you like to talk about? Yeah, so um, let me just do a quick preface. We forgot to say that, you know, one of the surprising things I found when I started researching black co-ops was how strong a role black women had in the mutual aid and co-op movements. And so it was a pleasure to kind of find a lot of the examples were examples of black women's leadership in co-ops. And sometimes there were co-ops that were wholly uh, owned and run by black women. So let's start, you know, we know that in the mutual aid, right, mutual aid started in the 1700s. And many of the mutual aid organizations were run by black women. I want to start with a, a collective during the Civil War. Mm. The Cumbie River Colony, they call it, um, a collective of black women who were uh, farming and creating crafts together. So basically craft co-op and farming co-ops. But the story is fascinating because it connects with Harriet Tubman, who I think you all know, but I'll remind us of Harriet Tubman. You know, she was called General Moses because she, what, led like the 30 different trips of helping people to flee from slavery, right? She first freed herself by walking out of slavery and up to the north, and then I think it's 30 or 17 other trips, and I don't know, 300 people that she liberated uh, before the Civil War, before emancipation. And then during the Civil War, she was a nurse, but she was also a scout. And one of the 
place that she was was in South Carolina along the Cumbie River. And it turns out that she had this scheme that the Union Army that was uh, out in the water on boats uh, should come in and go up the Cumbie River and liberate the Gullah Geechee peoples along the river there. There were many multiple plantations and uh, uh, over 700 enslaved people. It took her a while to convince the generals and uh, that this was a good project, but they finally agreed with her. She did. Uh, she ran the scouting team so that they knew everything about what was what they were going to run into and what the Confederates had. Anyway, they ran a successful raid. They ran out all the Confederates who uh, up and left their plantations. The most of the black men actually joined the Union Army and went back on the ships and left. And the women, the elderly, and the children. Uh, were left on these huge plantations, and the women took over. They ran the plantations, farmed and did handicrafts, uh, ran them as uh, as independent collective. Right? They wouldn't let. Um, they wouldn't work. They refused to work for any white folks if there were any white folks left. They made sure those farms continued to produce, so that they all had a living. They could raise their children and help their elderly. And they so they successfully had this collective farming through the end of the Civil War and until the U.S. government actually gave the land back to the plantation owners. Oh, wait a um, minute. So, oh, God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to get into all those details, do we? <laughs> no, I don't. It's just, it just totally saddens me when the government comes in and is discriminatory, um, as bad as, if not right. worse, than individuals. Okay. Well, it was part of the, you know, when uh, President Andrew Johnson, Andrew, is that his name? Johnson, after Lincoln, he made these deals with the South, and that was part of the deals. He gave a lot of the land back. But anyway, they showed, right, that women could run plantations, they could farm, they could, right, take care of their communities. They did it as a collective, and they did it very fiercely. So I love the story because it combines, right, our hero, Harriet Tubman, with these everyday heroic women doing cooperative economics. Oh, so that um, fits in now, the Combahee River. Combahee River. That's the St. Helena Islands. Okay. Yes. Yep, all around there. Yep. So I was so the there. Same, the, the very rich Gullah communities. Yeah. So by the 50s, right, they also, the 40s and 50s, they, they had co-ops. They had some of the first freedom schools, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a story, isn't it? Um, David did a story about... Um, Septima Clark and one of the freedom schools that also was connected to a co-op on St. Helens Island or somewhere around there. So that that history kind of just keeps continuing, right? So the the part of the history that I found, I, I visited St. Helena Islands two summers ago and spent about a week there and visited a co-op and talked to a lot of people there. And the, the part of the history in which 1861 the the whites left the plantations and they had a law that if the whites left it then the blacks were free so the blacks were freed long before the war ended and around this in St. Helena Island so even though the the government came back and gave the land back to the whites the blacks continued to be free so yeah that that was quite interesting which made me to remember the date I was not good in dates but um, right yeah so the Cumbie, so the islands are out in the bay or whatever, the Cumbie River goes inland. So that raid was in in sixty three, I think, eighteen sixty three. So it was after, right? They had already taken out, you know, freed Helena Island. 
right? So just really fascinating histories, you know, and connections of histories, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As I said, the next quick story I also wanted to talk about was Cali House and the Ex-Slave Mutual Relief Bounty and Pension Association, which was a um, mutual aid society, so not an official co-op, but a mutual aid society uh, started in 1896 and lasted around till 1935. Their purpose, as you hear, ex-slave pensions, they were arguing that ex-slaves needed pensions and needed back pay, which is basically the argument for reparations. So this is actually the first official reparations organization in the United States. It was founded and run by a black woman, and it was a mutual aid society. So in addition to arguing and lobbying Congress for the law change, which didn't happen, of course, they were also helping each other, right, sharing, collecting money to to help each other, pooling resources for sickness and uh, for sickness benefits and food and that kind of thing. So they're operating under economic cooperation in order to keep the organization going and in order to keep themselves alive, right, while they were waiting, hoping for this legislation that they were pushing to be passed so that the ex-slaves would get um, would get at least pensions, if not back pay. So another really interesting organization, very pivotal, pivotal in U.S. history, organized and run by black women. So I wanted to mention that one as well. So do you know what happened to it? Were they sabotaged or red-baited? Yes, of course. I'm sorry. They were sabotaged. (laughs) Callie House was actually accused of mail fraud, just like Garvey, just like Marcus Garvey would be 20 years later. Because they were soliciting memberships through the mail, she was considered violating whatever Mm -hmm. Whatever whatever law. And I think she was actually in prison. Um, if not find, and they tried to close down the organization. So the lobbying part, the political part of the organization did have to close down, but the mutual aid society part was able to remain for another 10 years or so after they tried to um, limit her influence. So when I look at all of these different attacks on us and creating wealth, it's like today, at least before the before COVID, uh, the average white family had a, a net worth of $171,000 and the average black family had $17,000. Right. And not only slavery, but all these attempts that, that blacks did and was creating wealth, then the white found a way of sabotaging or bombing, like in Tulsa, but tearing right. it down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the in- interesting thing is, I do talk a lot about these sabotages but the interesting thing is no matter what they did to us we we rose right we're phoenixes we rose again and tried something else we did it in a different way we started a new co-op we tried something else in a different town we tried a different industry so it's not even though we didn't talk about it as much we still kept doing stuff so even all the sabotage never really stopped us that's why i found this continuous history. There were certainly periods of time where we were more active and more successful, but there wasn't any period of time where there wasn't, there aren't examples of blacks doing cooperative economics. And as I said, a lot of them led by women. So it's, it's also that resilience, right? And the way that co-ops can keep, you can keep rising, keep doing it, even if you have to stop that specific activity that gets targeted. 
And you made a point that even though they failed for whatever reason to sabotage or whatever, that there was a lot of knowledge gained yes. in the process. Right. So that's why I also move on to the next project, right? Okay. So people learned how to work together. They learned how to do operate in that business. They learned how to pool money. They learned how to make decisions together. They learned uh, other skills and tools. And so they were able as individuals to go on and do other things, but also as groups to go on and do other things. And they well, learned their lessons and did stronger, right? Well, the we, next project would be we, we gotta come stronger back. and better. We've got to take our break and come back and talk about other examples of women and how, how they uh, work together. We'll be right back. This is WOL News Talk 1450 AM and 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Nimhart is our guest today. And Jessica, we're in our 10th year. We started this program. We were only going to do it the month of October. And I liked it. Everybody liked it. And love having you on the show. National Co-op Bank likes it. They have been sponsoring us financially so we can tell these stories. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, and that's where most of black, brown, indigenous people live, by providing innovative financial and related services. And they do a really good job of that. It's difficult being a banker in the U.S. uh, capitalistic system and with that uh, mission, providing financial services for low-income communities. But I want to get back to you telling us wonderful stories. I'm at the edge of my seat listening to some of these stories. Who would you like to go to next? What story would you like to go to? So I'm going to quickly do Maggie Lena Walker and Nanny Helen Burroughs and Ella Baker, though it's really hard to do Ella Baker quickly because I do want to focus on our new unsung hero in the Hall of Fame, Helena Wilson. But let me just quickly mention Maggie Lena Walker, the Independent Order of St. Luke. Maggie Lena Walker took that over in the late 1800s. It was a women's sickness and death mutual benefit association out of Maryland, but it became a, a national organization and she moved the headquarters to Richmond, Virginia. And in Richmond, she was able to do a bunch of things with a majority women board. They created uh, what they called the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. So they started a savings bank so that women had access to credit and financial services. It was, you know, a mutual aid, a mutual, mutual, not insurance company, but a mutual bank. The bank actually also supported affordable housing, about 600 units of affordable housing. They also opened a department store run by the women. And then in 1929, they bought up all the other black-owned banks in Richmond and created the Consolidated Bank of Richmond that was the and Trust Company, Consolidated Bank and Trust Company of Richmond, which Maggie Lena Walker ran, still as owned by this mutual aid association. So another really interesting concept. We didn't really talk about money and credit unions and banking, but here's where the women realized that without a bank, without affordable housing, right and and they even needed as i said their own department store mm-hmm. um they couldn't really um 
make a difference and make a, a you know do the things that their mutual aid society needed them to do for the women so that's another really fascinating story and a woman who you know became a banker right uh largest black bank in the south i think for its time that kind of thing so that's an interesting story uh and brings us to the financing kind of pieces nanny helen burrows was in education right she started the national school for women and girls in washington dc she also started the women's auxiliary of the national baptist association so she was a strong leader in civil rights and education but even as she did that she focused part of her time on economics she was really worried especially in the great depression that black women didn't have stable jobs didn't have high quality jobs right being a domestic worker was uh, very precarious it didn't pay well you were at the whim of the men who hired you and so she looked at co-ops as a way to support black women especially very poor black women to give them good jobs that they could uh, own and work themselves and so she started these co-op factories which eventually became cooperative industries of dc they were doing sewing canning uh, making brooms etc she was able to get some money from the fdr administration and they bought a farm so then they did farm to to city stuff and started a, in addition to having the worker co-ops they had a consumer co-op so she actually really kind of pioneered what we now call the multi-stakeholder co-op so another really fascinating combination of you know a strong civil rights worker who believed in education but realized that co-op education and co-op ownership needed to go hand in hand with with other civil rights activities again empowering women she was an educator a business lady a politician politician from the stand up of being very political she didn't run for any office mm -hmm. as i recall civil rights right and also remember she was a religious woman right she was the head of the whatever that was called i think it's the women's auxiliary to the baptist convention the national baptist convention so she had everything right she had the spiritual the business side the education side the civil rights side but again one of those people who realized that economic control right and economic democracy were going to be necessary we couldn't just do all these other pieces we needed the you know we needed to focus uh, have some focus on economic equality and economic prosperity that we control so she um, was an educator she knew that education was very important she yep. was a business lady knowing that you had to have money and people had to have wealth which also right. gave control them health, control yeah. of, yeah, and she was very much involved in in the politics of the of the time, and she was spiritual, mixed. And okay. she was a spokesman, a spokesman for the larger co-op movement. There's letters in her um, papers from uh, the D.C. co-op chapter of what was now NCBA, but then was Clusa. And they used to write to her asking her to come, you know, give talks and come to this meeting and speak here and there. So she also turned out to be a spokesperson for the co-op movement. Wow. What happened to her business? Do you know? Was it sabotaged too? You know, I don't know what happened to Cooperative Industries of D.C. My sense is that once the depression was over, 
it's one of those examples where when the need wasn't as strong, people kind of reintegrated back into society. So now we had women with all these different skills, right, who were used to being in factories and running their own economics. It seems like they were all able to then go on and do other things, but I actually don't know. I never found any records of disbanding or how it disbanded or when it disbanded. All the interviews I found of her about co-ops talked about it when it was at its height in the ni around 1936-37, but my understanding is probably by 1940 the co-op didn't exist anymore or maybe they were just doing the co-op farm and you know bringing healthy food back into the city. But yeah, there's no records that I could find of when uh, all the projects closed down. Okay. So that's the other problem with all this history. There's not good records of things. So if anybody out there in the particular D.C. area that knows how, what happened to that business, please let me or Dr. Jessica <laughs> gordon Hart know. We <laughs> would like to know. Right, yeah. So, and, I mean, there may have been some sabotage, but as far as I know, those might have more, quote-unquote, naturally... You know, as I said, evolved into other thing, other projects or something. Okay. Um, and then before we do Helena Wilson, who was also in the 30s and 40s, let's just quickly talk about Ella Jo Baker. We talked about her a lot last year. She was inducted last year into the Hall of Fame as an unsung hero. But we can't talk about black women in the co-op movement and not talk about her. So we know that she was uh, the executive director and co-founder of the Young Negroes Cooperative League from 1930 to about 1936. We know that after the first three years, they did not have enough money to keep their office open, so she operated the organization out of her apartment in Harlem. Um, but we also know that a lot of fantastic things happened during the short period of existence of the Young Negroes Cooperative League. They had about 24 chapters throughout the country. Ella Baker was basically their, the educator, right? So she produced newsletters, pamphlets. She went traveling, helping people to understand co-ops, how to start a co-op, how to persevere through the challenges of starting co-ops. The Young Negroes Cooperative League in their first year held a conference, their first conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and they attracted 600 attendees. Wow. In 1931 the role of black women in the co-op movement. And I cannot find a copy of that speech, so I only know the title. I have not been able to read it. Anybody <laughs> out there, if you have that speech, please <laughs> let us know. <laughs> I don't know what she said exactly, but I know from, other, from her newsletters and things that, you know, she felt, again, that women were kind of the organizers. They were the backbones of their, of their families and their communities. And so it was, you know, it behooved us to be the ones to make sure we knew and understood and could, you know, start co-ops and keep them going and keep them running. Um, so we also talk about Ella Baker, right? She's better known for her civil rights work in the 50s and 60s and for helping with SNCC and believing in democratic grassroots leadership among the people most effective. But really all that 
I argue she learned all that in her co-op years because of course the co-op right the people who are most effective own and run their own co-ops and you need economic democracy and economic democracy means voices need to be heard so I think she learned a lot about democracy organizing grassroots leadership from her co-op years and then was able to use that to good effect at the height of the um, official civil rights movement yeah, she was very much involved in the March on Washington in 1963. Yes. Her name right. was. Well, she was also a co-founder of SCLC. She was a co-founder of SCLC. She was executive director of Southern Christian Leadership Council to Martin Luther King's presidency, but no one ever thinks about who actually did all did the work. work and who was the executive <laughs> director, right? They only think of Martin Luther King and his, uh, his ministers. Uh, but she was right there. She helped to found that organization, and she basically ran it. And it was through that understanding also that she then connected with the young people to start SNCC because she realized the young voices back again to her career in the Young Negroes Cooperative League, right, how important it is for young voices to be leaders in, the, in these movements. And she was inducted into the Unsung Heroes category. Okay of the co-op hall of fame last year right so we only have a couple minutes before our next break so could you at least introduce helena wilson yes i would love to so i'm very excited that this year's unsung hero category for the hall the co-op hall of fame uh was won by helena wilson who's a very unsung person um she actually headed the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Women's Auxiliary for about 25 years from its beginning um, until uh, she retired. Um, what that means, what the Women's Auxiliary was, and they insisted on being called, oh sorry, it was actually the Ladies Auxiliary. They insisted on being called ladies because they said that's what people called refined white women and um, they were refined black women, and so they needed to be called ladies. Um, and the ladies auxiliary was actually the wives of the sleeping car porters, but also one unknown thing is the, um, the Brotherhood also included maids and domestic workers in the sleeping cars, and those women uh, workers, the maids and domestic workers, in, well, I guess they wouldn't be domestic workers, the maids, house cleaners, I mean, train cleaners, <laughs> well, let, also members of the ladies auxiliary. Let's stop there and we'll come back and pick up on Helena Wilson. Please, everybody, don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Information is power, and before we took the break, we were talking about Helena Wilson. I just want to tell you guys, though, you've got to get this book, Collective Carriage. Dr. Nimhard wrote this book several years ago after researching for 15 years. And Callie House, we talked about, you can find that on page 44 and 45. Maggie Lena Walker, 45 through 48 in the book. Nanny Helen Burroughs on page 17 and 258, Ella Jo Baker, 
She's got a lot. She's got 20 on page 22 and 112 through 125. She had 14 pages. And Helena Wilson is on page 154 through 60. So get this book and get this history. Continue, please, Dr. Nimhard, on Helena Wilson. So Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, I think you all know, founded by um, A. Philip Randolph and a couple other guys. It's the first official independent black union since the legislation that allowed unionization, what, in 1934, I guess. Um, but as soon as the Brotherhood Union is created, the Ladies Auxiliary also is created. And Helena Wilson actually works very closely with A. Philip Randolph. And um, first, she's the president of the Ladies Auxiliary in Chicago, which is the headquarters of the Brotherhood. And then she becomes the international president of the Ladies Auxiliary and international because the Brotherhood also had chapters in Canada. And so she becomes uh, president of the Ladies Auxiliary and works with Randolph on three major projects. The first one is, again, education. And they understand how important it is for what they call consumer education, but she adds co-op education. So it's not just consumer education, but co-op education as well. And she started at least seven different study groups in major cities and major chapters throughout the U.S. and Canada to make sure that women were studying and understanding economics, consumer economics, and cooperative economics so that the Brotherhood could keep the money that they were earning, right? So now being unionized, the members of the union are actually earning decent middle-class wages. And the Ladies Auxiliary, one of their missions, self-proclaimed missions, was to help make sure the money stayed recirculating in black communities and that the women were able to use right, this newfound middle-classness in a way that helped everybody, helped the rest of the race. And so that's wow. why this understanding of cooperative economics, how to do buying clubs, how to pool their resources, how to keep money recirculating in their community was so important. So education was the first and thing. And also, the second. yeah, so edu co-op education and consumer education and buying properly and collective buying and keeping money recirculating in the communities. So also, um, they talked about starting credit unions and actually the first credit union the Brotherhood started was in Canada in Montreal, Walker Credit Union. And I wasn't able to find out what other credit unions they started, though Helena did try to start a credit union in Chicago, but um, didn't get enough support. But what she did do, as we said, was had all these study groups. So she had black women all over the country studying cooperative economics. She actually believed that the junior achievement programs needed to teach children and young people cooperative economics. So she actually had a column in uh, the Brotherhood's newspaper, I think it was called the Masses or the Black Masses newspaper, right? She used to write about cooperative economics, explain other countries what they were doing. Or one of her rants or one of her columns was ranting against the junior achievement, keep teaching kids to be little capitalists when they really needed to be cooperators. Okay. Um, and so she wanted to revamp the whole Junior Achievement programs. So she was very much interested in making sure we all understood the benefits of co-ops and how they could help communities and why we all needed to study and then start co-ops. So she tried to start several co-ops and was more, mostly successful in a big buying club. 
but didn't didn't have wasn't able to turn that into a grocery co-op but she did have a buying co-op in Chicago and then in Chicago she also was recognized by the larger labor unions in Chicago and so they started having her come to meetings and come to conferences and then she helped them to start an eye clinic a labor owned eye clinic in Chicago she was eventually uh, elected to serve on the National Consumer Cooperative Council basically one of the only black women to get that she was frequently again asked by uh, the labor movement to to talk about co-ops and to represent uh, not just black labor but black labor's interest in co-ops so she was able to connect co-ops to labor to consumerism etc and all this you know under the radar right nobody's ever really heard of her i was lucky that i was friends with a woman who studied the ladies auxiliary melinda shadowvere she wrote a book about them and she was she shared with me she noticed when i was we worked together at the university of maryland college park and one time i was talking about my research and she said oh you should look into the ladies auxiliary i've found a lot of their papers there's all kinds of stuff about Elena Wilson and co-ops and so again right that's why I keep talking about the snowball effect and talking to people right the more I talk to people the more I find out stuff so she was uh, very generous in sharing her research with me I read her book and she shared some of her notes and um, files and I was able to find this rich rich history in the archives of the Brotherhood with letters she wrote back and forth to A. Philip Randolph, as well as to many other people uh, in the movement, both in the labor movement and the co-op movement, again, and all her writings. I didn't actually read all her columns, but all her writings in the Brotherhood newspaper, because she, again, saw that if we didn't talk about this and learn about this, there's no way we could do it. Mm -hmm. So that connection between we need to discuss it, learn it, talk about it and then do it was very strong and so she did you know travel all around to the other chapters and start study groups so people could study it she helped people to start buying clubs and uh, that kind of thing and she turns out she was sort of one of the go-to people at least in the Chicago area for both the labor movement and the co-op movement so again another person who was connecting different uh, movements and mm -hmm. different groups and showing how co-ops were essential to all these other pieces and she started out in mutual aid right she had started out running a mutual aid association before the brotherhood started so the dinner for these heroes these co-op heroes is october the 5th and this year is uh, very interesting when i looked at the group there five people being inducted with helena wilson being the unsung hero so there's four other folks in there and there's three women three blacks which is unusual and with two whites so there's it, it's very interesting and then linda leaks is the bl a black lady that's there so talking about current now people are doing things um do you want to talk a minute or so about linda yes yeah, so linda leaks is a colleague you know a friend and a colleague a, a contemporary she is a housing co-op developer and she i think she helped to start about 17 housing co-ops in the dc area or 15 i forget the exact number but some incredible number partly as a volunteer and partly working for wish wish right and that's when and i met then, her when i met her she was with wish and she helped to start right, it she was with wish. yeah right yeah 
So partly through WISH, but also some of it was just volunteer work because she's so passionate about it. She's also the co-founder of her own housing co-op, the Ella Jo Baker Intentional Community and Housing Co-op with uh, Adjua Fateo and uh, other black women activists in D.C. They wanted to make sure there was a, they could stay in D.C. as it was gentrifying. And they wanted to make sure that activist women had um, affordable housing. And so they started this limited equity housing co-op themselves, in addition to all the other co-ops she helped to start. And she's really been a women's and co-ops activist, I think, pretty much all her life. Yes. Um, yeah. I know you'll have her on later in the year before uh, the ceremony, and I'm sure you'll have other people talking about her as we build up to that. But I do want to, again, remind us that these are not just stories from the past. We have people who continue to do this work, right, both connecting people to being educated, learning about the options of co-ops and then doing them. And we know that we still have this strong presence of black women in the co-op movement, the worker co-op movement. Most of the new worker co-ops are women of color and immigrant women. And so we, you know, again, this continuing legacy of women realizing the power of co-ops and how important it is for us to both understand why and how to do it and then to do it and then to keep sustaining it, right? Because we also, all these stories are about women who year after year, even when everybody else was tired or old or discouraged, or even when they were sabotaged, they kept saying, we can do this, let's keep going. We just need to try again, or let's regroup and do it over, right? So they really, um, even the men in the co-op movement recognized that the women were the ones sustaining things and keeping people, keeping people's energy up. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Everybody out there, um, it is great talking to Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart. We'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively.